Well, I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 this morning, Mark chapter 8. In the passage we have this week, it's a continuation from what we learned last week where we witnessed Jesus feeding the multitudes, but we also witnessed witness the disciples missing the picture. And at this point, the person and the power of Jesus should be completely obvious to them, but more often than not, they seem to be mostly oblivious. And even though he has performed this miracle before of multiplying bread, it's like they're shocked all over again, like they hadn't seen it before. The disciples time and time again fail to see the obvious. It's like they can't see the elephant in the room. It's a common saying we use to describe something that's so completely obvious you just can't miss it, but yet some people still do. Just imagine walking into church this morning and standing in one of the corners was a massive elephant. How, how could you miss it? The sight, the sound, the smell, it just doesn't seem possible. The only way you could miss that is if you couldn't see or didn't want to see. Many people think this idiom of seeing or not seeing the elephant in the room goes back to an old short story told by Mark Twain, published in 1882 called The Stolen White Elephant. It's a detective story of a stolen white elephant from Siam. White elephants there are sacred. They're more important than the king. And one year, the king of Siam decided to give a white elephant as a gift to the Queen of England. But during the trip, though, the ship had to stop in New York because the elephant was sick and had to be seen by a doctor. But during that trip, the elephant was stolen. And the handler was in such a panic, he knew his life was over if anything happened to that elephant. So he, he went to the nearby police station. He hired and contacted the local police force, enlisted the chief detective named Blunt, And that's where things start to get ridiculous. The detective asked for a detailed description of the elephant, his size, his shape, his name, his parents, his place of birth, what he eats, what he drinks. And all the questions he asks, it sounds like good detective work until you remember and realize that all he's trying to do is find a a massive white elephant in the middle of New York City. Meaning it should be pretty obvious. There's not really anywhere he can go. Still, Detective Blunt puts... Many detectives on the case. He sends them all over town into neighboring states. They all think they're hot on the trail. They all have their theories of where the elephant went. But none of them can find the elephant. Weeks go by, and all of Blunt's plans fail. And it appears they're never going to find this elephant. But just to make a short story even shorter, one evening, the detective takes the elephant handler down to the basement of the police headquarters just by chance, And down there, it's a a very large basement, almost like a subway station with vaulted ceilings. Sixty detectives sleep down there when they're not out on the case. And by candlelight, they're walking to the far end of the basement when they're hit by this suffocating smell. And then the detective trips on a large object. But he's not upset. He's not dismayed. Rather, he's exuberant. He stands up and he proclaims victory to the handler. He says, sir, we have found your elephant. It was in the basement of the detective building all along for three weeks. I mean, granted, the elephant had died and starved of hunger, but at least the detective found it. Mark Twain wrote this short story as a satire to lampoon, make fun of the detectives of his current day in the 1800s, but no explanation is is given of how the elephant got down to the basement, but that's really not the point. The point is that these detectives, they excelled in only one thing, And that was missing the obvious. Even something as obvious as the rotting carcass of a massive white elephant in the same basement where they slept. 
you'd have to be blind and unable to smell to miss that. And if you've been with us here throughout the Gospel of Mark, you're probably starting to wonder a little bit about Christ's 12 disciples. Namely, are they, are they blind like that as well? Do they have something missing, some screws loose? Because they too seem to excel in, in that one thing, missing the obvious. It started way back in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus stilled the storm. At that point, they had already seen him heal and work wonders. So it should have come as no surprise, even though they got caught in this massive storm out on the lake, they had nothing to fear. The God of the universe was in the boat with them, so what could go wrong? But instead, they went into a faithless panic. They started screaming, fearing for their lives. They all thought they were going to die. Jesus, of course, was woken up. He stilled the storm. And then he asked them, why are you afraid? How is it that you still have no faith? They should have known by now already his heart, that he cares for them, and his power, that he will deliver them, but they didn't get it. And a second incident takes place on the lake in Mark chapter 6. Right before this, Jesus had fed the 5,000. He took five loaves and two fish and miraculously multiplied them to feed thousands this is an act of direct creation. This is the power of God on display. And the disciples, they, they were right there. They saw this happen. What an amazing thing. But right after this, they get in the boat to cross the sea, and another storm hits. Only this time, Jesus is not with them. He's up on the mountain praying and watching them. And they're struggling and suffering in the storm, again, fearful. And Christ decides to go and to deliver them, to rescue them. And how does he get to them? Just a little, you know, walking on water, nothing big. He walks on water, he visits them. He wants them to recognize him and call him into the boat. But instead, remember what happens? When they see him, they all start freaking out. They start panicking. They think he's a ghost. He's going to sink their ship. They're all going to die again. They all scream like little girls. Not a single one of them has any courage And so Jesus, he has to just say something. So he says, basically, take courage. Guys, it's me. Do not be afraid. Because they were very afraid. He gets in the boat, and again, instantly, the storm stops. And the disciples, it says, were utterly astonished, like they had never seen anything like this before. And Mark chapter 6, verse 52 says, because they had not gained any incident, or rather, any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. This takes place right after the feeding of the 5,000, and they're still not getting this. They don't understand. They're not seeing him. They just witnessed his supreme power over creation. It's the power to create. So why are they so surprised that he can walk on water? And why are they so afraid? What do they think is going to happen to them with with him by their side? I mean, just don't, don't they get it by now? Don't they see who he is, what he's up to, what he's come to do? But the answer is no, they still aren't getting it. They keep missing the obvious. And now, here in our passage, we come to a third incident, again, out on the lake. And this one also happens right on the heels of another major miracle, this time the feeding of the 4,000. As we study, these are similar events with similar results, but each teaching their own set of lessons. We learned last week, Christ is in Decapolis, which is that region on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a Gentile-dominated area, but still, he's there in a crowd forms. 10, 15,000 people total. 
He teaches them, heals them, he feeds them, all of them. For the second time, he takes seven loaves and a few fish and he multiplies them to feed everyone. It's the second miracle of feeding. We covered this last week. It's another work of creation, just like God did in the beginning. And the disciples, they were right there. They had front row seats. They had backstage passes. They're the ones handing out the new bread and the new fish. So they knew what was up. Afterwards, though, they hop on the boat and they cross the lake again. One more time. This time, Jesus was with them in the boat, thankfully. And this time, there's no storm. So it's already going well. There's no storm this time. It's smooth sailing to the other side. But there was a test. And there were some questions being asked. And it makes us wonder, how are the disciples going to respond? Jesus is testing them. Do, do they get it? Do they understand him? Do they see him at this point? I mean, look, we're well into the third year of ministry now. Do they get it or not? Do you get it or not? Do you get him or not? Then we're going to find out. We're coming to a huge peak in Mark's gospel. It takes place at the end of chapter 8. It's a high point, thankfully, a high point for the 12 disciples in their understanding of Jesus. But I've got to say, before we get to the high, we're going to reach a low. This is a a low, low in our passage before us. Because we realize during this little boat trip that even after, or rather in the third year of ministry, they still don't get it. They don't see who he is. They don't know what he's come to do. They just don't get it. It seems that everyone is missing the significance of Jesus, his friends, his enemies, his disciples, his opponents, everyone. The person and the power of Jesus should be so obvious by now. But it's like everyone keeps missing the elephant in the room, so to speak. And so in this little passage we have before us today, we find some critical lessons, not on faith, but instead on spiritual blindness. Now, shockingly, we learn that this spiritual blindness can affect even those who are close to Jesus. From his enemies, even to his friends, everyone is susceptible to missing Jesus, and it's still true today. Spiritual blindness still plagues people today. Just as many people miss Jesus today, even those who are seemingly close, like those maybe in the church. They come to church, but they just don't get it. How can that be? Do you ever wonder? How can people sit in church their entire lives, sermon after sermon, Sunday after Sunday, but still be just as lost as the unbeliever? How can that be? And it happens all the time. How can that be? We're going to find out in our text, Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. I hope you can see already, it's an important passage we need to consider. We desperately don't want to be like those who are so blind, so led astray, who can't see Jesus. We don't want to be close to him, but failing to grasp him. We don't want to be those, I hope, who go to church their entire lives, but are still hopelessly lost. And so we need this word from the Lord today. I want to keep this relatively simple. So I just want to focus on two highlights Number one, the spiritual blindness of Christ's enemies. And number two, the spiritual blindness of Christ's friends. 
spiritual blindness of Christ's enemies and then that of his friends. Let's begin, simple enough. Number one, the spiritual blindness of Christ's enemies from verses 11 to 13. We're just going to go verse by verse like we always do. So let's start off together at verse 11. Picking up from last time, it says, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Just to fill in the gap from last time, right after Jesus fed the 4,000, he and the disciples, they hopped in the boat again, crossed the lake again. They land on the western shore, district of Dalmanutha. And just right away, it seems like, the Pharisees find him like guard dogs who sense an intruder. They just pounce on him. And they're, they're right there, ready to argue and to test him. And they want to see a sign. As they come to him, say, show us a sign. But this is kind of strange because by now, Jesus has already performed hundreds of miracles. And it makes us wonder, did the Pharisees, did they miss out? Have they not seen Jesus do any of his miracles? Is that the case? No, it's not. The Pharisees have seen plenty of miracles. Mark chapter 1, they learned of this leper being completely cured. Mark chapter 2, they witness a paralyzed man get up and walk. In Mark chapter 3, they watch a man's withered hand be completely restored. They've had front row seats to many miracles. They've seen it with their own eyes. So they saw his power, but they also heard his teaching. They heard what Jesus was all about, and that's what they didn't like, because they knew that he exposed their hypocrisy. And so they didn't like him very much. They hated him. They couldn't deny his miracles. That's how real they were. They couldn't deny the miracles, but they could deny their source. So that's what they did. Remember back in Mark 3, they say, oh, sure, he works wonders, but he does it by the power of Satan. They're not from God. And this is why so far, even though they have seen so many miracles, they've disregarded them as signs. And so now they come to him and they want to see in their eyes a real sign. They say a sign from heaven. It's a specific, a sign from heaven was some definitive proof that a prophet came from God. Something cosmic, something in the skies that leaves no doubt that you're with God. They wanted to see Jesus rain down manna from heaven like Moses or make the sun and moon stand still like Joshua. But Jesus saw through their veiled request. In reality, even if he moved heaven and earth, they're not going to believe. They're not going to believe. Why? Because their problem is not evidence or needing to see signs. Their problem is spiritual blindness. Their hearts have already been hardened against Jesus. And and you see a hint of their true agenda at the end of verse 11. Where it says they want to see a sign. Why? To test him. And this word for test, it's not talking about a simple objective test. But this is the word for temptation, an obstacle, a stumbling block. Same word used of Satan testing or tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And their intent here is not to prove Jesus, but to make him fall. They want to see him stumble, to discredit him in the eyes of the people. They're not like the man who comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, 
help my unbelief. That's not where they're coming from here. They're not trying to believe. They've already settled their rejection of Jesus. They hate him. They want to destroy him. And that's their attitude that they approach him with, with this question. So that being the case, do you think Jesus is going to play games with them? He's going to play ball? He's going to comply with their request? No. Verse 12. Instead, he just sighs, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. This is what it looks like for Jesus to be exasperated. Like Moses with the Jews in the wilderness. He's just had enough with these Pharisees and, and really all the Jews. The Pharisees and all the people who followed them, which was most of the people. They have rejected Jesus. Despite the evidence. He has already filled the land with irrefutable, unmistakable messianic signs. Remember? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, even the dead are raised up. We could add to that, seas are stilled, water is changed to wine, bread is multiplied. How could you ask for more signs? He's already given so many over the years. In reality, here's the deal. The kind of Messiah that the Jews want, he's never going to come because he doesn't exist. They want a Messiah who will come in power, take out the Romans, and leave them in charge. You see, they hate Herod. And they hate Caesar. That's only because they want to be Herod. And they want to be Caesar. They want the power. And Christ's credentials as the divine Messiah have been clearly given many times over. But they've rejected this with full knowledge. The request for more signs is only a display of their spiritual blindness so he says, no, no sign, no more signs. No sign will be given this generation. Except for one, one last sign, is what we learn in Matthew, the parallel account. He says, I'll give you one more sign. It's the sign of Jonah, which of course refers to his resurrection. It's the last thing they'll see. And even at that, they're still, they will still reject. Like Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 16, if someone rejects the word of God, then even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. Their hearts are hardened. They're blind. It's very interesting though, later in Mark chapter 13, Jesus talks about false prophets who are going to rise up in the land and they're going to lead a lot of people astray. How? Through false signs. When you have a people obsessed with signs and wonders, they're very easily led astray. And it's actually true. They wanted to see a sign in the heavens. You know, when Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes back, there will be signs in the heavens for his return. The sun and moon will be darkened in those days. But mankind will be so hardened in their unbelief that nothing will move them. As commentator Garland says, quote, No angelic host will descend from heaven with trumpets blaring to herald the news that Jesus is king until it's too late when they arrive at the end of the age to gather the elect who have risked trusting in Jesus, end quote. These Pharisees, unbelievers, the lost, they'll get their sign, but it will be too late. And for now, as a result, we see verse 13. How does Jesus respond to the Pharisees? He leaves, verse 13, leaving them. He again embarked and went away 
to the other side. Nothing good was going to come from further discussion with the Pharisees. They were scoffers, and Jesus was not going to cast his pearls before swine. So he left. There's nothing left to do there. He left. Something to learn here about dealing with scoffers today, by the way. But this really is sad. Jesus turns his back on them and leaves. And the same fate awaits all those who persist in their spiritual blindness and reject Christ. The time when mercy is offered will expire. The offer of forgiveness will turn into the sentence of judgment. And for the Pharisees and for those like them, even today, who remain in spiritual blindness, only judgment awaits the end of that road. Jesus himself saved his harshest words for people like this who who get him but reject him. Matthew 23, five times he called them blind. Blind fools, blind guides, blind hypocrites. In Matthew 15, he says this of them. He says that every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Then he says, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. In my opinion, I think those are some of the saddest words in Scripture when he says, let them alone. And when he says in our passage, he just he turns away. He leaves them and gets in the boat. There's no reaching them. There's no mercy for them anymore. There's only wrath. And why? Because they're his enemies. They have seen his works. They have recognized his identity, as we saw earlier. But they turned against it. And it just shows it is a fearful thing to know the truth, but to turn against it. You can't be hardened unless you have knowledge. A person who's ignorant can't be hardened. They don't have anything to be hardened against. It's only when you get a taste of the truth that you run the risk and danger of being hardened against it. And that is a terrifying place to be. This is the spiritual blindness of Christ's enemies and its results. He turns away. He leaves. Well, there's more to say about this spiritual blindness, especially for those who are opposed to Christ. But for now, our passage shifts and turns towards the disciples, his friends. And we really expect them to be different. We expect them to be opposite to the Pharisees, they're, they're going to get it. They're going to understand Jesus, we expect. But as you already know, that's what makes this passage so shocking because we realize they're just as blind. I mean, can that, can that really be? Is that the case? They're just as blind as the Pharisees? Well, let's find out. Number two now, the spiritual blindness of Christ's friends. The spiritual blindness of Christ's friends. Verses 14 through 21. Let's begin in verse 14. So they get on the boat, they leave, and it says, verse 14, And they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. After leaving the Pharisees, they get back in the boat. They're heading to the northeastern shore. But en route, they realize, hey, we forgot to pack some bread, which is kind of ironic since this takes place pretty much right after the feeding of the 4,000 when there's all that, all that leftovers And you hate to see good leftovers go to waste. But apparently they didn't take any with them after the couple of boat rides. But now they're very concerned because they don't have lunch. They're worried about lunch. Like some of you right now might be worried about lunch. But they realize that one little loaf is not enough for all of them. Jesus, though, he notices they're talking about bread, so he thinks this is a perfect teaching opportunity. So he jumps in. 
And verse 15 he says, he was giving them orders to them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Given that their recent encounter with the Pharisees was fresh in their mind, just happened maybe an hour ago, he gives them a special warning. They're already talking about bread, so he plays off of that and he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven, of course, is used to represent evil. Yeast is a type of leaven. You probably know how it works. Technically, it's a fungus. And it ferments the sugars present in dough, releases carbon dioxide, little air bubbles, and that's what makes bread rise. But when you look at the characteristics of leaven, they're the same as the the wicked worldviews of the Pharisees and Herod. They're invisible, they're potent, and they spread gradually, unnoticed, until they finally take over. And such was the hypocritical traditionalism of the Pharisees and the self-serving secularism of Herod. And if you want, you can throw the Sadducees in the mix. That's what we learn from Jesus in Matthew. And Sadducees, if you don't know about them, they're like a perfect blend of the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're part religious and part secular. They like to have a little religion in their lives, make them feel good, but they really care about this life, the things of this world. That's the Sadducees. And, and overall, Jesus is saying, watch out for all of these worldviews. Beware their false doctrine. Beware their unbelief. Beware their hypocrisy. It's, it can easily spread unnoticed. Even the 12 disciples are in danger of letting their thinking being be taken over by the world around them. In fact, unbelief, or rather, at the least, missing the significance of Jesus, it's already starting to ferment in the boat among the disciples. You have to remember, these 12 disciples, they've been raised and trained in this Jewish culture. That they're just fishermen, they're common guys, they're not religious leaders or authorities. The Pharisees are. In their whole lives, they've been looking to these men, these Pharisees and others, as their religious authorities. They respect them, they fear them, they listen to them. So now they're watching these, these same people, the Pharisees, they confront Jesus, they oppose Jesus, they reject him, they hate him, they deny him, they don't believe in him. Do you think the disciples are immune to being affected by that? They're not. And even in this latest altercation, this latest run-in with the Pharisees, the Pharisees, through their influence, they spread just a pinch of doubt among the disciples. And is he really who he says he is? Just a pinch of doubt. And if they're not careful, if they don't put a stop to that, that can spread and turn into full unbelief like leaven spoiling the whole lump. That's the danger, the danger of unbelief. If you follow them, if you listen to them, they're going to lead you away from God. It's a serious warning that persists today to beware the way of the world. It just takes a pinch and it can spread into full-blown unbelief. It's a valid warning. It's a good warning. We still need today to watch out the ways of the world, whether it's religious traditionalism or liberalism or secularism, to watch out. It's a good warning. Christ gave them a good teaching opportunity. And they needed to learn this. But they don't quite get what he's trying to say. You look in verse 16. 
they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now just, just stop for a second. Instead of reflecting on the lesson that he was trying to teach, they go back to talking about lunch. Incredibly, they, they totally missed the point Jesus was trying to make, and they instead they took him literally. They thought he was literally telling them to not buy bread that had leaven in it, especially from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Don't, don't get leavened bread. They were in charge of procuring food. That was their job. They had forgotten some. So now they're saying, okay, what are we going to do now? Maybe the one little loaf they had in the boat was leavened. We don't know, but maybe. And so perhaps they're thinking, great, now we've got nothing to eat. Where are they going to find some unleavened bread? And just their response, the obtuseness of the disciples never ceases to amaze They're so consumed by their physical need, their hunger, that they fail to seek first the kingdom. And as a result, they appear to be just as spiritually blind as the Pharisees to the things that Jesus teaches. And and that's pretty much true. Jesus would agree. Look what he says next, starting in verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why? Do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? We saw earlier Jesus get frustrated with the Pharisees. This is him getting frustrated with the disciples. And for a similar reason, their spiritual blindness. Jesus launches into a series of eight stinging rhetorical questions these questions are both designed to rebuke the Pharisees or the disciples rather for not seeing what they should have seen but also to try and pry their eyes open because it's time for them to see he asks first why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread that bread's not the issue he's not talking about bread they keep getting so caught up with these earthly mundane issues It prevents them from seeing the spiritual significance of Christ. What's their problem? Don't they see? Don't they understand? He asks. No, they don't. They can't. Why? Do they have a hardened heart? Yes, they do. He said several times. Their hearts are like stone and Jesus is pouring living water on them, but they can't soak it up. It just rolls off. They need their hearts to be made like sponges. But for now, they're hardened. And even though they have eyes, they can't see. And even though they have ears, they can't hear. Don't underestimate Christ's exasperation with his disciples at this moment. Apart from the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross, he's nowhere more frustrated with his disciples than right here. Because by now, there's no excuse. They should have seen. They've just This is on the heels of so many significant miracles. They, they have no explanation no reason for why they can't understand him it should be obvious it's the elephant in the room but just like the pharisees they're totally missing the point look they had seen signs and wonders more than the pharisees they had seen some exclusive signs that no one else saw walking on water they were behind the scenes with the feeding miracles even raising a little girl from the dead they witnessed that peter james and john Just talk about an amazing witness. But even though they were given more revelation, 
they don't seem to be any further along than the Pharisees. They're still missing it. They're just as hardened, just as blind. It's a real low point for the disciples. But you might be thinking, that that seems a little much. That's a little hard to believe. They've seen so many miracles. How could they really not get it by now? Is there some other explanation for why they're like this, seemingly so blind? Maybe maybe it's just a memory issue. Maybe they've just got short-term memory loss, and they're really just forgetting all the works of Jesus, because that just seems too hard to believe. Is it just a memory issue? Well, not so much. As he continues, look at the middle of verse 18. He continues and says, And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Here Jesus finishes his barrage of questions and he confirms that they don't have a memory problem. In fact, they have a perfect memory of recent events. They know all the facts. They can recite all the details of these two major miracles. They didn't forget. They've got it down. He says, for the first feeding, you know, the the five, the 5,000, how many extra baskets were there? They're like, well, 12, right away. They're like, 12, they remember. And for that second feeding with the extra large baskets, how many extra were there? And right away, they're like seven. We, we know this. They know the details. They can remember the events. They, they know the numbers. It's just that they have failed to ponder and grasp the spiritual significance of these facts. They can identify that Jesus mold, multiplied bread. He called into creation thousands of loaves. They remember that. They're not forgetting that. But what does that say about him? What does that signify about who Jesus is? What he comes to do? They've got nothing. It's like they didn't even think about it. It's like, oh, he just multiplied bread. Well, moving on. They're not even thinking about this. Last week I told you we would talk a little bit more about these numbers. And again, I'll say people have been trying to attach some allegorical significance to these numbers for centuries But I really wouldn't bother with that. Nothing in the text tells us they have a a special secret meaning. If anything, you could build the case that the 12 baskets of leftovers from the first feeding of a large Jewish crowd signifies that Jesus is the bread of life for the Jews. And the seven baskets of leftovers from the second feeding of a largely Gentile crowd signifies that Jesus is the bread of life for the Gentiles. It's kind of a mouthful. Hey, you you could make that case, but we already know that to be true. And nothing in the text really tells us explicitly that there's a special significance to the numbers. It's really beside the point. The point is that the disciples, they can remember all the numbers. They know the data. They have the facts. But they still fail to see the bread maker sitting in the boat. That's the point. They worry about not having lunch. But they pay no attention to the fact that the bread of life is right there. That's the point. We're into the third year of his ministry, the last year of his ministry, and we have to come to terms with the fact that they still don't get it. They don't understand him. And that's a problem. That's a problem, right? What's the explanation for this? How do we make sense of that? 
We started asking that question last week. How can this be? We knew this was coming. They're just, they're just falling flat on their face here with these questions. And the answer we get from Jesus himself applies to his enemies, but even to his friends. The answer is spiritual blindness. They, they don't get it because they're, they're blind. The disciples did not see because they could not see. I know some of you are thinking, though, well, wait a second. How can that be? Because they're not supposed to be spiritually blind, right? That's for the bad guys. That's for the Pharisees. That's for those who reject Jesus. They're the spiritually blind people. I thought the disciples, they're the ones who can see, right? Well, there's a yes and no to that. I said at the beginning, as we reflect on this passage, it really is a pinnacle text on spiritual blindness. This is the valley. Before we get to the mountain, which is coming, this is the valley. This is the low point in their career. But it reveals so much because it showcases blindness, even among those who are close to Jesus but don't quite really grasp him. And there's a lot here for us to learn. I want us to spend some time now reflecting on this a little bit deeper. Take it out of a deeper layer now. And if you have eyes to see, I want to pull out five lessons on spiritual blindness from this by way of reflection. I think five lessons emerge from the text on spiritual blindness that we really need to see uh, that we would not be similarly blind. Let's do this now with the rest of our time. Number one, spiritual blindness is universal. Spiritual blindness is universal. In this passage, we see the disciples, they miss Jesus just as much as the Pharisees. They're both unable to discern spiritual truth. Both of them. It's not a one-time thing. This is a condition. This happens over and over again. And this only highlights a key truth taught all throughout Scripture, namely that spiritual blindness is universal. Everyone is affected. Everyone. In fact, spiritual blindness is related to spiritual death. It's like if you have a person who's recently deceased, they still have eyes, but they obviously can't see anything. And likewise, those, all of us from birth, were born spiritually dead, which also means we're spiritually blind. All mankind is born blind, groping in the darkness, unable to find God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. He can't, because they are spiritually appraised. It's blindness. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18 Speaking of unbelievers, it says, Walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their hardness of heart. In the Romans 1, 21 through 22, speaking again of the lost, it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This is a universal problem. It affects everyone. It's pervasive, like leaven. It spreads, but it is universal. None are exempt. Even disciples, even believers before salvation succumb to this spiritual blindness. 
This is a universal problem. Even more so, spiritual blindness is powerful. Second, spiritual blindness is powerful. I hope you get the point. It should be obvious, but the whole theme is you can miss obvious things. But it should be obvious that this blindness is a problem. Because if you're blind, you can't see God. You can't find God. You can't know God. And you're just going to be left to the darkness, to the outer darkness, to judgment. So blindness, that's a problem. We, we need this fixed. You understand that? The problem, though, is we're all born this way. It's a huge problem. What, what's the solution? What do you do if you're born blind? How do you unblind yourself? Well, overcoming spiritual blindness, it's not an issue of knowledge. Knowledge is important, but it's not the cure. The disciples, they knew the facts. They knew the details. They had the head knowledge, but it didn't cure their blindness. And the same happens today. Countless people who call themselves Christians, they know the facts. They have all the data swirling around in their minds, like the disciples. They can tell you all the Bible stories. They know the the details. But they're still clueless to Scripture's meaning. They don't know Jesus. They don't understand him, his mission, his person, the gospel. That's because they're still spiritually blind. It's not just a knowledge issue. Knowledge is not the cure. Also, overcoming spiritual blindness is not an issue of evidence. Seeing signs and wonders won't shock you out of your spiritual blindness. The disciples, the Pharisees, they had front row tickets to so many signs and wonders, but that didn't stop or cure their spiritual blindness. It was of no effect. Blindness is not overcome by witnessing supernatural works, amazing as they are. It just shows this is a powerful problem with no easy solution. Spiritual blindness is always tied at the hip with hardness of heart. And what, what can you do about that? What can you do about a heart of stone? If you have a heart of stone, how do you change that? Can a leopard change his spots? How, how do you change your own heart? Spiritual blindness is a powerful problem. And to make matters worse, spiritual warfare is involved. Forces of darkness, they want to keep you in the dark. They operate in the dark. They want you to stay blind. That's their mission, like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 say. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is, in addition to your own blindness, a supernatural prevention from seeing the gospel, which is the only answer. This is a big problem. Spiritual blindness is universal. Spiritual blindness is powerful. Hopefully you can see this this is not something you're going to fix on your own. Not something you can handle. If something isn't done as well, this condition can become permanent. There's a third lesson there. Spiritual blindness can be permanent. Number three, spiritual blindness can be permanent. And of course, this is exemplified by the Pharisees. They had the knowledge. They had the evidence. They had the experience but they turned their hearts against it. Their hearts were set in their rebellion against the Lord. They, they chose their selves, their sin over the truth. So he left them. He left them in their blindness. No more light for them. 
They're left in the darkness. And just like Romans 1 says, non-believers, they know God. They know God. His existence, even His attributes, they're evident to them. They know God. It's just they have chosen to suppress the truth in unrighteousness in order to enjoy their sin. And if that's the case, it gets to a point where God says, okay, you choose yourself, your sin, over me, the truth. He says, okay. And he does what? Three times, Romans 1, gives them over. He gives them over to their sin. Spiritual blindness becomes a permanent condition when you reject the only one who can do something about it. At that point, you're left to your sins. You're shut out from God's mercy. And that leads to only one place. Like Jesus himself said of the Pharisees, this is him talking, some harsh words, but he says, Matthew 23, verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? That's Jesus talking. He says that to them. And the answer is, they won't. They can't. Why not? Because they have rejected the only means of escape. There's only one way. And it's staring at them, and they've rejected him. And it's in this way that spiritual blindness can be permanent. If you take to the grave your rejection of Jesus, then you're lost forever. But thankfully, thankfully there is some good news here, namely that if it can be permanent, it can also be temporary. There is a way of escape. And so we find a fourth lesson. Spiritual blindness can be temporary. Thankfully, it can be permanent, but thankfully it can also be temporary. And we see this from the disciples. There's a silver lining here. We drew several comparisons between the Pharisees and the disciples. They had a similar hardness, a similar blindness, but it's not quite the same. That there are some key differences between the two. Both suffered from a form of spiritual blindness, but for the Pharisees it was total. For the disciples it was partial. For the Pharisees it would be permanent. For the disciples it would be temporary. And that's because for the Pharisees they did not follow Jesus, but the disciples, they did. And as a result, Jesus left the Pharisees, but he stayed with his disciples. The Pharisees received wrath the disciples received patience. The Pharisees were left in the darkness, but the disciples were going to be given more light. These are the essential differences. We find overall that although they shared at times a similar blindness, the main difference between the two, between all believers and unbelievers, we could say is orientation, direction in a word. The Pharisees and all unbelievers are aimed away from God. Their hearts are set in their rebellion. We all were once like that. But the disciples and all true believers are aimed toward God. Their hearts seek Him. They seek the light. And that's an essential difference. Where does that difference come from, though? What makes you one or the other? How, how do you get that way? Well, at a divine level, it's simply traced to God's calling and choosing. There's a divine element behind this whole thing where God calls, God chooses. We don't know who, we don't understand. There's a divine element here. But at a human level, we can say that it comes down to faith. The disciples made real decisions to follow Jesus. A real 
genuine change in orientation or direction took place as they committed to follow the Lord. And you probably already know, I'm not big into pressing people to make decisions for Jesus. You've got to sign this card. Because when you pressure people, you get, you get phony decisions. I think we all hopefully know that by now. But that being said, that being said, true discipleship, true faith begins with what? A decision. You have to make a decision to forsake the world, to turn from sin, to humble yourself, to seek God, to follow Jesus. That's all involved. The disciples, they weren't perfect. They also were living in an Old Testament era, devoid of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So they were missing out. But at the same time, they had made that decision. They had forsaken the world in all things to follow Jesus. And they were there. They, they didn't get it all, but they were with him. And that's the kicker. That's the difference. They followed Jesus. They, they had a little faith. He said, why do you have such a little faith? But you know what? They still had faith. And that's enough. Why? Because Jesus can work with a little faith. He won't leave you there. But he can do with your little faith, your little understanding, what he did with the bread. He can multiply it. He can bring it out. It's been said that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The Pharisees and all unbelievers are like the clay. God's light only hardens them more. But the disciples and all true believers are like the wax. They've been changed by God's grace, working through their decision to follow Christ. And as a result, God's light softens them and melts them down so that they can be shaped into the image of Christ. That's how it works. And it all hinges, from a human perspective, it all hinges on what you do with Jesus. Will you follow him or not? I hope you do, because finally, number five, spiritual blindness can only be cured by Jesus. Spiritual blindness can only be cured by Jesus. We've said it's a big problem. We all start cut off from God's presence. We can't see to find the door in. Spiritual blindness is a universal problem. It affects everyone. It's a powerful problem. You can't unblind yourself. It's a potentially permanent problem. It's possible to be like this forever. But thankfully, it's a potentially temporary problem. There is a cure. And the solution, though, is outside of yourself. There's nothing you can do. And that's so evident with the disciples. We know they're not going to find the answer on their own. They're not going to get there. They must be led by Jesus. And that's the answer. Jesus will show them the way. He can cure your blindness. That's the great lesson. That's why he came to earth in the first place. Because everyone is blind. And apart from his intervention, no one would ever find God. And so he came. Jesus can make the blind see. That's the point. And as a quick side note, what do you think is the next passage in Mark chapter 8? First, Jesus takes a man who is physically blind and makes him see. And right after that, he goes back to the disciples who are spiritually blind. And finally, he makes them see. And they get it. It's coming up. So as a side note, don't miss next week. <laughs> Can we say that? You don't want to miss next week. But the ultimate lesson, of course, is to follow Jesus. Believe in him. I'm not going to give you a card to sign, 
It's not going to make you walk down the aisle or, or write your name on something. But you do need to make a decision to follow Jesus in your heart, between you and the Lord. It has to start with that. Pray, ask God to open your heart, turn from your sin, forsake self, as we're going to see, and follow him. And he will remove the veil. Let the light of the gospel shine in and he'll give you eyes to see. This is a change that he does as we seek him by his grace. So set your heart for him, point yourself in his direction, run for Jesus. He will not turn you away if you seek him. He'll give you eyes to see, to behold his glory, and to live. We thank him for that. Let's pray together. Our great God, our deliverer, our savior, we do thank you for the redemption we have in Christ. We are blind. We all started that way. And it's a, such a hopeless condition. We grew up around. We can't find the door in. We can't find you. We, we care only about ourselves. We seek our own satisfaction apart from you. So lost. But we thank you for sending Jesus. He is the one, the doctor, the, the great physician who can open blind eyes, physically and spiritually, make the blind to see. We rejoice in that. And as we follow you, by your own grace and mercy, you give us eyes to behold you in your glory. Lord, for now, we still see in a mirror dimly. We still don't see it all. We still fall short. We still can, can fall prey to a, a temporary blindness or a partial blindness. But we look forward to the days of glory when we will see perfectly face to face. We pray now we can seek you all the more so to know you, to worship you as you give us eyes to see and to render you glory. I pray always for those here who are spiritually blind. The irony is nothing can affect them. No sermon, no message can change them. It will be in one ear without and out the other if, Lord, you don't work in their hearts. So I pray you do that now for any in here who don't know you, who just don't get it. They, they come to church. They sing the songs, even in a lifetime. But their hearts are far from you, and they just don't know you. Lord, you must make them change, and I pray you do that, and that they cry out for help, for faith in Jesus. For those who know him, Lord, we do celebrate, we rejoice that though we were blind, now we can see, and we just give you the glory for that. We honor you with our lives, and, uh, and just trust you with all that you give to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.